0: Good morning, church. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Heavenly Father,
1: as we need the help of the Holy Spirit to see the glory of your gospel, your Son, in familiar carols or songs, so too we desperately need, we happily and cheerfully depend on the illuminating power and convicting work of your Holy Spirit to understand and see your glory in familiar scriptures as we read. Whether we are singing things that are familiar or reading things that are familiar, Lord, we confess to you that that our minds and hearts are prone to say, sung that before, heard that before, and to walk right by the majesty of the glory of God. We don't want to do that today, Lord. We don't want to do that. So open our eyes to see your glory Thank you for this opportunity you have provided as we anticipate Christmas to think your thoughts about your incarnation after you. And we pray that you would help us as we do that to feel your feelings about the incarnation after you and to respond to your thoughts and your feelings with humble obedience that loves you for who you have revealed yourself to be. Uh, Give me grace to preach. Give all of us grace to hear in your name I ask. Amen. Amen. I hope you're enjoying lingering in this Advent series. It's been a while since we've done that. And though though we had in some ways just gotten started in Deuteronomy, um, it it is good. And I am thankful that we're camping out for a few weeks in the first two chapters in Matthew. I think expectations categorically are really powerful things. If if you expect to receive a gift from a family member, speaking of Christmas, and you don't, how do you feel? You expect and you don't? Some level of disappointment, I would imagine. What if you don't receive a gift, but you never actually expected one in the first place? Well, how do you feel then? Well, because the expectation is different, right? It, it doesn't quite feel like such a big deal. In both scenarios, the, the emotional experience is governed by our expectation. They're powerful things. They they either multiply or mitigate our experience of suffering in a broken world. We we, we do well to to stop and think about what are my expectations? What are your expectations? I've noticed that some people, I can see this temptation in myself, uh, attempt to to kind of inoculate themselves, protect themselves against the disappointment of shattered expectations by cynically expecting the worst. I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's your particular bent, but we can go there, right? I think others others try, no better, to, to entirely eliminate the very desires that give rise to our expectations. What's that? Well, that's Buddhism, right? That's the nirvana Buddhist pursuit, where, where you're, you're expecting nothing, hurt by nothing, above suffering, because you want nothing. Well, in, in contrast to both of those things, Here's what Christianity says about expectations, okay? Christianity says both the presence of expectations and the desires that drive them, that fuel them, are exceedingly good things, okay? They're they're part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, they may be corrupted by sin. They may be distorted by, by willful rejection of God's word. But listen, the solution to the sorrow of shattered expectations is not to expect the worst or nothing at all. Okay, the biblical solution is to embrace expectations that are two things. That are informed by the word of God and are rooted or grounded or fixed in the character of God. You want expectations that are informed by the word of God, governed by the word of God, and rooted in the character of the God whom this word reveals. Because God's word is true, my friend. It is good to expect of God and men what this book tells us to expect of God and men. And because God never changes, this is really important, It is good for our strongest desires and our greatest expectations to be fixed in God and God alone. Why do I say that? Because you are just like everyone else around you. People change, people will disappoint you. Listen, God will not. He will not. He always does exactly what he says he will do. Think about that. Always. Psalm 25, verse 3. Because of the unchanging character of our God, the psalmist can say this. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. There's not another human being on earth of whom that could be said. And I think one of the sweetest blessings of of studying the incarnation, of the birth of Jesus, is this opportunity it affords to examine our expectations of who God is and the way he works. Okay, think about this. look Look at verse 18, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. not in a hidden way or unknowable way or pretend way, but, but in, in this way. In other words, when, when God works in the world and he is always working, we, we can expect him to do so in a particular kind of way. Think about that. A, a way that is what? That's consistent, that, that always aligns with his unchanging character and in a way that always aligns with his sovereign purposes. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in a particular kind of way and and the purpose of this whole passage is found in verse 23. Look there, The, the birth of Christ is all about God revealing himself as Emmanuel or God with us. But, but I think there are times, friend, because of our expectations, that it's hard to believe that. We, we, we wrestle with questions like, Lord, are you really present? Are you really Emmanuel? Are you, are you really at work in my life? If, if we see what we, what we want to see, what we expect to see, what we think God owes us, we conclude he is, right? But, it, but if we can't discern his activity anywhere, we don't see what we expect to see. We're not getting what we want him to give. Well, then we conclude he's not. Our, our expectations, if, if this image helps you, they, they become the, the functional scorecard that we use to evaluate whether Emmanuel is present or absent, mightily at work or missing in action. But here's the good news and that dilemma, that challenge, okay? Though the incarnation itself is unrepeatable, the, the way in which God brought it to pass back then is the exact same way that he is presently working today. That's that's the good news. That's what we need to see. So so let's follow the gospel writer's lead. Here's what we're going to do. in considering the way in which the birth of Christ took place so that our expectations of God's work and the criteria that we use to discern his presence would be governed by what God has told us to expect of himself. That's the goal, may, may there be no foisting human expectations on almighty God in King's way. May there be receiving God's revelation of what we should expect of him, that those who hope in him in his way would never be disappointed. So how does God work? What do we see here? This is a six-point sermon. Here we go. We're going to linger on the first three and go faster on the last three. First, God works in a way, point number one, that appears foolish in the eyes of men. Foolish in the eyes of men, verses 18 and 19. From a narrative standpoint, just to catch up to speed, we haven't been in Matthew long, the whole goal of verses 18 through 25 is to explain an enigma A paradox of sorts at the very end of the genealogy in verses 1 to 17. If you look back at the genealogy, you have this repeated formula. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, until you get to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. What what do we expect in verse 16? Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. Right? That's the pattern, but, but that's not what Matthew says. Why not? Because Joseph wasn't Jesus' natural father. In verse 18, look there, chapter 1 tells us why. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not familiar with ancient Near East culture you got to know this, okay? At the time, betrothal or engagement was a legally binding relationship in ways that American engagements are not. So so even before the wedding took place, even before the marriage was physically consummated, verse 19 confirms, look there, that Joseph was considered Mary's husband. Betrothal is a big deal. And Mary was considered Joseph's wife. They they were formally pledged to one another, such that the only way to to end the engagement, to break off the engagement, wasn't just to say, hey, can you give me the ring back? You had to issue a certificate of divorce. Big deal. So so just imagine, imagine what Joseph must have thought. Imagine what Mary's family thought. What what the whole community thought thought, when, when they discovered Mary's pregnant before the wedding. Don't, don't read 21st century American morality back into the text and say, well, it's not really a big deal. No, that was scandalous, friend. That was disgraceful. That violated every Jewish cultural expectation that was rooted in biblical sexual ethics. So just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What's he know? He knows what? I'm not the dad right i'm not the father so who is well come on joseph it's it's god the father like haven't you sung that care nope never before in the history of the world ever not once had a woman become pregnant without having sexual relations with a man and verse 19 reveals the only logical conclusion Joseph could draw. What's that? Mary's been unfaithful to me. And the penalty for adultery under the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 22, was death. Unless the betrothed woman had been taken by force. But by the first century, the Romans, occupying Palestine, had, had actually taken away the Jewish ability to wield the death penalty. They reserved it for their own court of law. And so, so issuing a certificate of divorce in keeping with Deuteronomy 24 was Joseph's only available option. And, and being a just, look, or righteous man, as Matthew says, Joseph saw no other option. What, what's going on there? Well, well he couldn't marry Mary in good conscience. He couldn't do it. To, to do so would be to communicate that adultery and sexual immorality isn't a big deal. That, that his wife's faithfulness to God and to men, you know, it's just a, a matter of minor importance. Joseph knew it was not. It was a big deal. And think about this. Besides, if he married her, the entire community would perceive the wedding and him going forward with it as what? An implicit, a tacit admission, I'm the dad. Even if he never said that. Both outcomes, turning a blind eye to sin or confessing sin he did not commit, rightly violated joseph's biblical sense of justice he's a righteous man but at the same time he was also a compassionate man look again at verse 19 he he doesn't want to heap shame on mary so he resolves to divorce her quietly it's an honorable thing to do but but his integrity his honor doesn't doesn't change the fact friends feel the weight of this the whole situation looked like a mess I mean, you didn't have to have Facebook or social media for, for this to get out in the community, right? This, this was a mess. In the eyes of men, it was godless. It was scandalous. There was, there was nothing commendable, nothing praiseworthy or, or promising afoot. It was a lead story for the tabloids. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world Do not look at any situation in your life or around you, my friend, and conclude there is no way God is at work in that. That's godless. That's a scandalous shameful space in the universe where God is not on the move. Don't do that. His ways are higher than your ways. You see, his thoughts are, are greater than your thoughts. The birth of Christ does two things. It, it humbles us and it encourages us by what? By reminding us that God delights to work through what is foolish in the eyes of man. Remember that. Here's the second way God loves to work. He works in a way that demonstrates, point two, his sovereign authority. Demonstrates the sovereign authority. Look, look at verse 20. I love the simplicity of this description. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Notice there's, it's not just here, but across the whole Bible, there's nothing passive about the biblical portrayal of God's actions in human history. Nothing passive. He, he doesn't, God, God doesn't wind up the world and then just kind of let it tick its own course out of some sort of deference to the human freedom of the will. No, he actively and personally and decisively intervenes in the affairs of men, my friends. To what? To bring about his perfect sovereign will and purposes. Exactly when we want him to do so? No. It's usually when we least expect it, right? exactly in the way we want him to do so? No, it's usually through situations we would never choose if given the opportunity. Why not? Because as Paul says in Corinthians, God doesn't take his cues from the wisdom of men. Yours or mine, nor does he exist to fulfill our wishes. He created us to fulfill his. And his sovereign purposes will stand. Why? Because he is God and there is no other. He's the only sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings. But before him, all men are like grass, the prophet says, and the nations are what? Like dust on the scales. You don't live in a universe that is out of control. You, you live in a universe that is firmly under the sovereign control of Almighty God. So what was God's sovereign purpose for Joseph. Here's where we need to remember something about the covenants in the Old Testament, in particular, God's covenant with King David. What did he promise David? That the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, our Savior, the the one who would bring all of God's redemptive purposes to pass, would arise, would come from David's line or David's lineage. So Matthew 1, the genealogy Caleb preached last week, establishes Joseph as a descendant of David, not Mary, right? But if Joseph takes Mary as his wife and names her son as his own, what does Joseph become? Jesus' adoptive father. Though not his natural son according to the flesh, Jesus becomes his legal son in the eyes of the law, which makes Jesus what? A legal descendant of David. So check this out. Nothing less than the fulfillment of all God's promises to David hinges on whether Joseph makes a certain decision or not. So is God wringing his hands? Is he stressing out? I mean, what attention? Like, I need a bathroom break. You know, it's like, no, no, he's not. He transforms Joseph's will through the sovereign authority of his word. Think about that. God's word never returns void, friend. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And so notice several things about the way God's word exercises God's sovereign authority in Joseph's life. First, God's word is personal, The Lord calls him by name and reminds Joseph of his identity. What does he say? You are Joseph, son of David. But your life may feel, look, seem to you terribly insignificant, but, but you are part of a much bigger story I am writing in the world that goes all the way back to your distant grandfather, King David. God's word comes to us in the same way today, friend. The same way. When you open the Bible and read, what is God doing? He's personally speaking to you. Personally. He he knows you by name. Just like he knew Joseph. And and through his word, he he locates us in his big story. Sinners and saints alike. God's word's personal. Second, God's word is comforting. I, I love the fact that the angel of the Lord didn't kick off this exchange with Joseph with kind of a freak out history lesson. So, you know, he doesn't say, okay, Joseph, so here's the deal. You're presently going down path B. My boss needs you to go down path A. So I need you to get off path B, onto path A, get with the program, and let's not wait too long because Mary's pregnancy is kind of moving along. So come on, Joseph, walk with me. You know, it's like, no, he's not, he's not freaking out. The word of the Lord to Joseph begins with an expression of God's care for the man in the midst of his emotional distress. Because God knew, God knows you too. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. I know your fears, Joseph. I know your name, remember that. I know you. I know your place in my big story. Don't be afraid. I'm here to comfort you. If you think of God's word as primarily a list of rules designed to keep you in line or to help you remain on God's good side, then you do not know the Bible, my friend. Because this book overflows with words of comfort from the king for you. And he's faithful to identify our fears and give us better reasons to trust him. Finally, God's word testifies his word to Joseph of the mighty deeds of the Lord. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Why not? Because that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful. The child in your womb is the son of God. He, he didn't just say, Joseph, stop it. Stop with the fear, stop with the anxiety. I am God, you are not, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. What did he do? He, he gave him reasons to be comforted, right? God's word is always like that. He gives us reasons for comfort. What are those reasons? He points us back to the mighty deeds of the Lord just like he did for Joseph. You know, sometimes God comforts us by changing our circumstances. But more often than not, I've noticed that he tends to open our eyes through his word in the midst of our circumstances to see who he is and the work he's accomplishing, even in the middle of the trouble. He brings comfort that way, which is exactly what he did for Joseph, exactly what he's faithful to do for you. God delights to exercise his authority in our lives. He intervenes in the affairs of men through the power of his word. Point number three. Here's another aspect, a critical aspect of the way God works in the world. He works in a way that magnifies the supernatural power of the spirit. Verse 20. And it really is at this point, friends, that we come face to face with the Mind-shattering, glorious mystery at the very heart of the Incarnation. And I say mystery not because it's something we cannot understand, but it's a mystery in the sense that what, what God has done in the Incarnation far exceeds the finite borders of our human understanding. So what did God do? What did God do? Think about this. The eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father, that the one who, who created all things, for whom all things existed, the one who in that very moment was, was sustaining all things, took to himself a fully human nature, yet without sin, and he became. An embryo in Mary's womb. <laughs> it's like I say, what? Come again? As our statement of faith declares, in, in this union, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one person of the divine Son without confusion, mixture, or change. That's glorious. (laughs) That's that's mind-shattering. That exceeds the finite borders of your human understanding and all the inquisitive powers of human science and observation to which God Almighty says, that's good. That's good, because I'm not like you. And if you want to know how such a union could come to pass, Matthew has one answer for you, both the gospel writer and me. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. And we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because the same Spirit that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1 in the first creation is now what? overshadowing Mary with his supernatural power in the new creation. No surprise. Go figure. At at the heart of the Christian faith lies an absolute miracle. A virgin who has never known a man conceives a child. To which part of me thought this week, well, why do it that way, God? Okay, just to bring you into my process. Why, why, why come to Earth in a virgin's womb, right? I mean, why, why not just show up on Earth as like a full-grown man in a nice car and a whole entourage? Like, there are leadership alternatives to the embryo thing. I mean, right? Are there? Well, there are many reasons the virgin conception is absolutely essential. If you've never thought about this, I'll give you two. First, the virgin conception of Christ enables full deity and full humanity to be united in one person. That's important. Okay? Kevin DeYoung says this well. If Jesus had not been born of a human, we could not believe in his full humanity. And at the same time, if his birth were like any other human birth, through the union of a human father and mother, we would question his full divinity. Indeed, we would. The virgin birth is necessary to secure both a real human nature and a completely divine nature. What what does Christ's human nature do? His humanity enables him to represent us, friends. Friends. Okay, to, to, to live the life we're supposed to live, die the death we deserve to die. Only a man could do that. And not like a man, an illusory man or a man lookalike, a true man. And what's Christ's deity do? Well, his deity ensures his obedience to the Father in life and death is sufficient to atone for our guilt to cover our shame and to destroy the works and effects of Satan. Both are mission critical. You you sacrifice full humanity or full deity and guess what happens? The entire gospel comes crumbling down. It's that important. And as if that wasn't enough, here's another reason (laughs) the virgin conception is so essential. It assures us that Jesus' human nature is unstained by original sin. Think about this, okay? It's 1120, but don't, don't get soft in your mind, all right? Let's focus. All who are natural descendants of Adam, first man, inherit both Adam's guilt and Adam's corruption. At conception. Put bluntly, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. And, and if Jesus had been conceived in the normal way, through a, a human father and mother, his, his human nature would not have been sinless. And he would have had to die, what? For his own sin and nobody else's. Right, in- Incapable of atoning for the sin of the world. But as it was, what did the Holy Spirit do? He prepared a body for the Son, in the words of Francis Turton, that had nothing in common with sin. Or as Luke one thirty-five says, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, sinless, set apart, unstained. And Hebrews 7.26 explains why that sinlessness, Sinless humanity is so important. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. We just keep piling on adjectives and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, you and me, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, then for those of the people. Again and again and again and again. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Amen? So, so, if it's that important, how should the virgin conception shape our expectations of God's work today? Is that relevant? Is there any relevance to that? I mean, Remember, remember that's the question. How, how does this narrative, this description of the way in which Christ was born, how does that inform our expectations of the way God still works? Although well, it reminds us of this, friend. God loves to accomplish His work through actions that are manifestly supernatural. Supernatural. I, I think we we so quickly, don't we? We we kind of shrink our God down to size, as it were. And, and he kind of becomes in our minds a a souped up version of ourselves. We stop expecting him to act in supernatural ways. Examples, when a friend is sick, we ask God to give the doctor's wisdom, but we can forget our God has supernatural power to heal. Or when we lack financial resources, we might ask God for for strength to work more hours, but but we forget he has supernatural power to provide for all our physical needs. Or when a child of ours, a son or daughter you love, begins making foolish, dumb decisions, we begin to argue and and plead with them until we're blue in the face. Can you please just stop? Forgetting what? That God is more than able to supernaturally turn their heart back to him. In an instant or when your spouse has stumbled in the same way for four decades. We we, we start to think and and act and kind of hedge our prayers and expectations as if God's ability to transform them is severely restricted by that crazy force of all their human habits. (laughs) Right? What, What is all of that? It's shrinking the almighty down to size. That's not who he is. He's God, friends. He's almighty God. He works in supernatural ways. The the miracle of the incarnation is a loud, flashing, noise-making, attention-getting sign that, that the power of the spirit, the power of God infinitely greater than our own. When you think, how could that union, full humanity, full deity, I don't get that. The the right response to that is not, I can't trust the Bible because I can't understand that. The right response to that is praise be to God. Praise be to God. Lord, I love the fact that your ways are greater than my ways. I love the fact that your thoughts are greater than my thoughts. King Jesus, thank you that you of all people are not like me. We're creatures. He's the creator. His ways aren't confined to the laws of nature or what we have seen him do in the past or what we can envision him doing in the future. He's not restricted by science and biology. He created science and biology. So don't, don't bring small prayers to a small God of your making, bring big prayers. To a big God. Because that's the kind of God we serve, friends. A a God who rends heaven and earth. A God who does things the world has never seen to what? Fulfill his sovereign purposes for his glory and your good. That's the God you serve. He works in a supernatural way. And now we're going to pick up the pace. Last three points. Fourth, he works in a way that provides for our greatest needs. Look at verse 21. It's almost unfair to try to do all this in one sermon. We're going to try. He provides for our greatest needs. What what does the Lord tell Joseph? Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If if you didn't know this, the name Jesus is basically a, a Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves, God saves. I don't know all the troubles that you brought into this room this morning. In your mind, in your body, in your heart. I I do know this, friend. No no matter what trouble you brought into this room, Jesus Christ is the answer. (laughs) In that area, that lack, that weakness, that need, that intractable problem, what you most need in that area, it comes from him. Always. Salvation is what? Of the Lord. Always. But here's where we have to be really careful, okay? By way of application. Getting back to our expectations, it is so easy for us to expect or even demand God save or provide for us in a way that makes Him the servant of our felt needs and desires you know what I'm talking about here? Can you can, can you feel this temptation within you? Okay, we, we turn him, we turn God, this is crazy, but we do it, into the ultimate therapist who exists to make my life easier and more comfortable. We we expect him to meet our needs as we perceive them, instead of humbly looking to him to reveal my true needs. And having done that, to then meet my true needs in ways that are immeasurably better and greater than all we could ask or imagine. So what's your greatest need, friend? Think about that. Caleb asked the question last week. What's your greatest need? God himself tells you in verse 21. Look there. Fix your eyes on your greatest need. Don't forget this. You need God to save you from your sins. That's your greatest need. I'm not talking, Matthew isn't talking about just the unfortunate consequences of an occasional bad decision. No, he's talking about the fact that we are born into this world as sinners. Separated from God, rightly deserving his judgment, perishing in hell. Unless God does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. You need God to forgive your sins. That's your greatest need. You need God to reconcile you to himself Through the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the good news. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Exactly. He came to turn your gaze to a broken body. To shed blood. We're going to do that with the Lord's Supper later today. So so how do we respond to that? Repent and believe today, friend. That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven or on earth given among men by which you may be saved. You do that, and today you can hear God Almighty declaring over you Matthew 9:2, "Take heart, my son, your sins, are fully forgiven. If the place you most long for God to work salvation. The forgiveness of your sins is the place God says you most need salvation. Then check this out you will never feel spiritually poor or that God has failed to come through for you. You won't. You'll feel spiritually rich because you know you are spiritually rich. (laughs) Through what? The forgiveness you have found in Christ Jesus. You'll be amazed by grace. So, Grumbling and complaining will cease and you'll live with a happy assurance that he who didn't spare his own son, if he wouldn't do that, how will he not also along with him, what? Graciously give you all things. He delights to work in a way that, that meets us at the point of our greatest need. Point number five, he works in a way that fulfills the precious promises of his word. If you study the the first two chapters of of Matthew's gospel, you'll realize pretty quickly that he's not just inserting random quotations from the Old Testament to kind of fill out an editorial word count for the birth narrative. (laughs) No, quite to the contrary, He's, he's actually selectively choosing parts of the birth narrative that show how what God has done in Christmas, the incarnation, is fulfilling all the promises he made that came before. Case in point, Isaiah seven. Rewind back to Isaiah's day, eighth century BC. Things aren't looking good for the Southern kingdom of Judah, to put it mildly. Judah's under attack from the Northern kingdom of Israel. They formed an alliance with the king of Syria, Ahaz and his people are outmanned, they're outgunned, Jerusalem seems doomed to fall. Isaiah 7 2, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's not good if you're a king. But Isaiah told Ahaz, Isaiah 7 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Ahaz. Within sixty-five years, both Israel and Syria, your enemies, Will be overrun by the king of Assyria. Taken out. Trust me. Trust me, Ahaz. And the Lord tells Ahaz to ask him for a sign, and Ahaz says, Nope, won't do it. And God gives him one anyway. <laughs> Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You realize that was both an assurance of salvation and a warning of judgment. Both. And, and the promise sign, that promise sign, came to pass in part through the birth of Isaiah's own son. Check this name out. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. In Isaiah 8, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. That son's birth confirmed to Ahaz and all Judah that salvation and judgment through the king of Assyria was fast at hand. God was Emmanuel with his people, but he was present to judge just as much as he was present to save. And so that first fulfillment of the prophecy was in Isaiah's day. But but just like a mountain range can have one peak after another, so too, what do we know about biblical prophecy? That it often has multiple fulfillments. That's what Isaiah 7.14 has. Because over 700 years later, that prophecy, that promise came to pass in an immeasurably greater way, friend. Only this time, it wasn't a sign of judgment. It was a sign of salvation. John 3, 17, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And and listen, what do those who come to Jesus for salvation from sin discover to their joy? What do we discover to our joy when we do that? That God is indeed Emmanuel, which means God with us. The, the people who experience salvation from sin in verse 21 are the people who call upon and experience Christ as Emmanuel in verse 23. Which means Christmas is not this assurance that God is with everyone. Do you catch that? Christmas is a promise that if you confess your sins, if you receive the forgiveness of your sins, if you bow your knee to King Jesus as a result, then and only then can you add your voice to the multitude of the redeemed who rejoice in knowing God is with me always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28. How's that possible? through the outpouring of the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? After Jesus ascended to heaven, he poured out the gift of His Spirit on his people. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, not a junior version of God, the essence of God, or the weird cloud train of God, God himself dwells within you. Christian, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you are nearer to God than any saint in the Old Testament ever was. It's true. God is with you, whether you know it or not. As Ed Welch says, this is the goal of the forgiveness of sins. Scripture is the story of God's plan to be close to his people. But don't miss why Matthew's bringing this promise of Emmanuel up in the first place, okay? Yet, Yes, Christmas declares God is with us. Praise be to God. But, but in the context of the whole story, in the context of Isaiah 7, Christmas says what? The God who is with us is with us as a particular kind of God in a particular kind of way. What is that way? He's the kind of God that fulfills every one of his promises. That's who he is. You can trust him to keep his promises, friend. That's how he rolls. We'll end with this. The last way I think we see God working in this passage is through the faithful obedience of his people. God works in a way that requires faithful obedience. I marvel at what the birth of Christ required from an ordinary man named Joseph. I really do. What, what? Think about it. What the Lord told him to do was far from easy. It, it was costly. It cost his reputation. It eventually forced him to flee his homeland. Jo- Joseph had little idea that was all coming. But notice how he responds in verse 24. Look there. When he woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. What do we see about Joseph's obedience? It was immediate, it was costly, it was complete. God works in the same way today, my friends. Through, Through righteous men and women, faithful men and women who are willing to obey immediately, even when it's costly, and completely. Why would you sacrifice a promising career? To disciple your kids. Why would you obey God in that way? Why why would you invest your money in the mission of the gospel. Instead of buying another vacation home. Why would you obey God that way? Why why would you correct a brother or sister in Christ. Or or talk about him with your neighbor. At risk of losing the friendship. Why, Why would you obey God in that way? When it's costly. Because as Joseph knew. Jesus is worth it. And because obeying him, when it's costly, immediately, completely, is the only path of joy in life. There is no other friend. The ways of the God who is with us are exceedingly glorious. And the way he works in this passage is the same way he works today. So when you read of the birth of Christ... Let it have its divinely intended effect in your heart. Let it, through the power of the Spirit, shape your expectations of the way God works. Expect him to work in these kinds of ways because these are the ways of Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, I ask now as we respond to your word, the good news of who you are and your saving, redeeming ways. Lord, I ask that you would help us as a people to have expectations of you that are informed by you By who you are, by the way you've worked in the past, that we would not demand of you what you have not promised to give, and we would not find ourselves disappointed by you when the root of the problem is our errant expectations. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to remember the way of Emmanuel, the way you work. That our expectations of you in the present and in the future would be shaped by your gospel.
0: For our good and your glory, I pray. Amen.